This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. It was the middle of February, and I was biking my daily five laps around what remained of Prospect Park in Brooklyn. The park, like the world around it, teetered on the brink of the abyss. Economic collapse had devastated New York City, causing a shutdown of most city services, including the subway system, all but paralyzing the city. Much the same level of disruption rippled through the rest of the country. Recovery from what had been coined the Great Debacle became all the more difficult because of the nefarious behavior of our computers. It was not quite an artificial intelligence revolt as much as machines running amok, unleashing chaos among the people who birthed them into this world. They no longer could be trusted to do what they were built for, a trait that felt eerily human. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Phil M. Cohen, author of Nick Bones Underground. It's the near future and the country has collapsed in what has become known as the Great Debacle, or the GD. Professor Nick Friedman, who moonlights as private detective Nick Bones, is asked to find a guy who seems to have disappeared in his first stop is a prison, followed by a visit to the Velvet Underground, formerly known as part of the NYC subway system. There he encounters an alternative society, but he also gets a hint of how difficult the search is going to be. The missing man was a chemist who created the world's most popular drug, or it was popular until it started putting users into a coma. Hi, Phil. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. Great to talk to you. So while you were accumulating all of your advanced degrees, did you always dream of writing a dystopian detective novel? Well, I've been talking, I've been thinking about this story for a very long time. And yeah, you know, dystopian fiction is something I guess I've always gravitated toward. 1984, Brave New World and that sort of thing. So my book is a modest contribution to that. How much does Professor Nick Friedman, your protagonist, who is a philosopher, how much does he have in common with you? Yeah, so... 
the idea of dystopian science fiction, I guess, is something I've always gravitated toward. Um, when I was in high school, I read 1984 at least twice and Brave New World. And lots and lots of science fiction has that kind of dystopian flavor to it. And so when I dreamed up this novel, um, it, it, it kind, of fits, kind of fits into that, that way of, of viewing the world. It's a kind of a dark way of looking at the world, but there's always, not always, but there's often a certain amount of light at the end of it. And I think at the end of my book, there is something of, of light, even though the reality doesn't change substantially. Mm. What does a philosopher like Professor Nick Friedman, why does he become a PI? And what was his genesis? How did you create him? Well, how I created him, I can't really say. I can't. I'd have to. I can't really say, uh, except that when I write, and this, I, I hear, I read about this I, from other writers as well. It's, to a certain extent, I let the character lead me on. I mean, I knew, I knew he was a. Uh, I, I, he fits in. He fits into detective fiction in certain ways. You know, he's a. He's. Um, tired. He's a tired guy, smart guy. He, he gets into the detective business because he's kind of tired in his life as a professor. And he gets one break, one one dramatic case, which not only gets him some press, but it also gets him the nickname Nick Bones, uh, which is also the title of the book, in the title of the book. Hmm. Artificial intelligence plays a big role in the book. Can you say more about Maggie? Yeah, Maggie is really, um, according to a lot of people who read the book, is, is, is the most fun character, the most interesting character in the book. And she's a disembodied computer, disembodied AI, not, not in a body like, say, Data in Star Trek, The Next Generation. Nevertheless, in, in written form, of course, I've got the opportunity to, to create a character who's who, who who I think is genuinely female, uh, and who is really has has a terrific sense of humor, has a great curiosity, has a deep religiosity, and is also an important sidekick to Nick Friedman in terms of uh, solving the mystery, getting getting things done. Um, she has very little to do with actual artificial intelligence science, except in some very, very vague ways. It's an opportunity. It's a, it's a, it's a really good device to create a character that is a little more omnipotent and omniscient. Well, not even omnipotent, as it turns out, but omniscient than an ordinary human being. And a great conversation, a great conversation partner with Nick Friedman. I love her. I want one too. Anyway, Mingus is another one of your colorful characters. Why does he choose to become homeless? And why does he decide to become Ezekiel? Oh, well, he doesn't decide to become Ezekiel. That happens in a mysterious way that I leave unresolved. One of the things about writing fiction, you don't necessarily need to resolve all the all the issues that arise. But he uh, he's, he's, a, he's a character who, um, well, he... He he write he's he's one of Nick Friedman's best students and writes a brilliant dissertation, and but at the end of it he moves into the reality that we're actually moving into in our world and finding that there are no he he, he did something in religion the study of religion, and he moves into the world and he finds there are no jobs and he's all because he's done such a good job in writing his dissertation he expects a job he feels he owes a job he's owed a job and it drives him nuts and it drives him so nuts that he um, 
he, he can't function anymore. He, he, uh, he and his family, he, he divorces his wife or his wife divorces him. And he takes up residence in Nick Friedman's foyer. Um, and Nick kind of takes care of him as one of his, as a former student. Um, this all takes place after the GD. Can you talk about that? Well, uh, yeah, I call it the great debacle, but I, I kind of leave that hanging in the air. And somebody criticized me for it in one of my Amazon reviews, you know, don't know what the great debacle is. And I started thinking like, you know, you read 1984, you don't exactly know how you got to that reality, but it is. You read Brave New World, you don't exactly know how you got to that reality. The great debacle, all, all, all we know is it's a terrible economic disaster that's had, had, had a terrible impact, at least on New York City, which is where the book mostly takes place, at least in New York City. And, uh, and it, it raises all kinds of difficulties. But what it is exactly, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand what that means, the great tobacco. Also, uh, you, you might make it clear in future books in the series. So there's that. Yeah, I'm working on the sequel, and, it's, and the great debacle is still hanging over New York City. And in fact, it's worse. <laughs> Sorry to hear about it. <laughs> it's worse. Um, do you think Gen Z and millennials and future generations will get your references, like, for example, to the Velvet Underground? Um, and can you say more about what happens when the subway system collapses? Well, um, I don't know about the cultural references to people who are who are under who, who are not who are not baby boomers. Um, if baby if people beyond the baby boom read the book, at least I hope they'll have some tolerance for these references if they don't get it. Although I hope they get the Velvet Underground. I mean, there's there's a great new movie on Apple TV great documentary about the Velvet Underground, one of my favorite old rock and roll groups. Um, but uh, the whole, you know, the whole New York City stops functioning properly. There's kind of minimal functioning going on. There's still cabs, although they're in really bad shape, for example. Um, and so what's happened is it, it, uh, and there's this civilization that, that grows beneath New York City. And I actually borrowed that from a, by the way, from a reality. There is a, there is a, a very small civilization group of people anyway, homeless people who do live beneath New York City. They, they get the nickname, the mole people. So I took that idea and I, and I grew it to an actual functioning civilization with governance and law enforcement and, and trade and all that kind of thing. And it's a little ambiguous. And I made that on purpose. It's, it's, it has this reputation above ground as being a horrible place, diabolical. And when the character Nick Friedman goes below and he's afraid that he's about to be, you know, uh, about to encounter some real violence, it turns out it's not exactly utopian. It turns out it's not utopian, but it's pretty damn civilized. And, uh, and, and it's a place where people who are having trouble above ground functioning economically and socially, they, they retreat to the Velvet Underground. And it turns out that the name is well-deserved. It's, it's underground and it's a kind of a velvet sort of civilization. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about LURBS. Why is it so popular? And uh, why did only 170 people become victims? Only 170 people? I don't, th mm -hmm. I, no, I don't think that's right. Oh, I thought that's what it said. No. We're in hospitals. 170 were in hospitals, maybe. No, they were in this one hospital. The, the, the world is uh, dotted. All right, so, so there's this, there's this drug, the villain of the book, um, 
And the villain of the book, Shmuley Shimmer, is a brilliant chemist. And even when he was in before, even when he was in high school, he was playing around with with making a designer drug. And in college or in graduate school, he perfected it. It's a combination of a real downer and and a hallucinogen. And the 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 the, the the downer part, the sedative part of the drug enables the hallucinogenic part to be really more powerful even than LSD. But what happens is it turns out that uh, it turns out that um, the drug becomes so popular, it makes it makes uh, Shmuley Shimmer and his partner, Esther Lacey, very wealthy billionaires. It's how that's how popular the drug is. But it turns out if one takes this drug more than a certain number of times, I think it's 40 in the book, they have a very significant chance of going into a permanent irreversible coma. And so what happens is people start going into comas. This is all before the book. This is before the reality of the book. And and the world is dotted with LURB hospitals where people who have gone into these comas are housed by the state. And uh, I think the 170 may be the number of people in this one particular hospital where, where Nick Friedman's daughter lies, having been a victim of this drug. Mm-hmm. What a, what's up with Esther Lacey? Why did only she get sent up the river? So Esther Lacey was, was uh, Shmuley Shimmer's business partner, without whom Lurbs would not have been circulated as widely as they were. Um, but when they get arrested, uh, the, uh, and, and this is during the, the beginning of the great debacle and the legal system is a little bit in disarray, um, he, Shmuley Shimmer, turns state's evidence on Esther Lacey, so she gets to take the rap, and Shmuley Shimmer supposedly goes off on the witness relocation program. But that's the whole setup of the book. He supposedly goes off on the witness relocation program, uh, but promises his father in, in kind of classical detective fiction style. He promises his father that... Um, that he'd be in touch with with the father once just to let him know he's arrived at whatever destination he's going to safely, but he never does. And so the father uh, goes to Nick Friedman. Shmuley and Nick Friedman are old yeshiva buddies. They're old high school buddies. And the father knows that Nick Friedman, because of this one case that he cracked and got a lot of fame. He knows that Nick Friedman does detective work. So he goes to the, he goes to the high school buddy, Nick Friedman, and asks him to find Shmuley Shimmer. But, and, and what happens, that, that you have to read the book to find out. Right. Can you explain web houses? Nick uses one after he uh, trips out. Well, um, I, mean, I mean, that's real. Oh, well, there's two levels. At one level, it's, you know, they're, they're very, com- they're not so common anymore, but they used to be much more common, you know. Uh, I forget what you call them. You, you know, you don't have a computer. You go to a place where there's a bunch of computers and you can rent them by the hour. But what's happened, and, and, and this is a bit of advanced technology that uh, still survives in this great economic uh, debacle, is um, you can go rent a room and, um, and, the the availability and the, the, the sophistication of web uh, of websites has really become much more intense than even now, and um, in, in, and I and I, I guess I can say this about the book. So so one of the also in classic detective trope fashion, Nick Bones gets um, 
Nick Friedman gets dosed. He gets a triple dose of this drug, Lurbs, and he's got to figure out how to take care of himself. So he goes to a web house. He rents a room. He calls up his computer, Maggie, who takes care of him. And she's his guide throughout the, the web averse in a way that helps him both come down from the trip, enjoy the trip, and then something during that trip happens that, that pushes the plot forward. Okay. Um, why does Simone Hartwig tell Nick that the Velvet Underground is the only vestige of decency left in New York? Well, because she, uh, she's, uh, I guess, a former New York City policewoman who finds things above ground to be just in growing more and more intolerable and not just economically, but, but politically as well. And, and that's a piece, by the way, I'm drop a hint, that's a piece that gets developed more in the sequel. And she discovers mm-hmm. the Velvet Underground as a place where there's a, a higher degree of civilization than above ground, although, as I said earlier, it's still a little ambiguous. Um, and so it's a, it's a little ambiguous, but she finds life down in the Velvet Underground much more congenial, much more civilized, but she doesn't move down there permanently because her mother is still alive, and but in, in physical impairment to the to the extent that to the degree that she won't go down with 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 Simone so Simone comes above ground every now and then she also says something that I'm wondering uh, I'm wondering if this is also author Phil M. Cohen's uh, thought about the world and I quote philosophy that's worth anything is about ethics Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, that, that's that, that's the heart of Jewish ethics, and I, I learned that from my teachers, and and from people I read that if that philosophy, if philosophy is going to be important, it, it has to be engaged in the ethical. It's also good, Emmanuel Levinas, by the way. It's certainly not my own invention, but it, it's it's right. It, it's got to. It's got to conduce toward helping people to understand and do the good. So you do follow that path as well. Well, that yeah, is yeah. you. Okay. And, Just want to make sure it's not only Simone. Um, I, I'm guessing that Rabbi Schmelzer and the Schmelzerite movement is loosely based on another Hasidic movement that established programs and centers all over the world. Can you comment on that? Yeah, this is a part. I'm really glad you brought this up because I, I think this is I, I think this is an interesting and important part of the book. But it, it, it fall. This is part of the book that falls outside of you know sort of uh, normal sci, sci-fi and mystery tropes. But it, it's it's an important part of the book, and it, and I and I think it, I think it meshes with the rest of the book quite nicely. But it is a bit of a parody on Chabad Lubavitch, and so you hinted at that, and that's what it is. But one doesn't have to know. Chabad Lubavitch to under to, to to get what's going on or to see how I'm using it, because I'm using it both to parody this this Hasidic movement, but it's also about it's also it's also a way of raising questions about what's true and what's not true, what's religion and what's not good religion, what's what's exploitation, and what's real about religion, and uh, the characters that are in that part of the book, I think, are both 
instructive in that way, and I, I'd like to think funny. I'd like, I'd, I'd like to think that one of the things I do in this book, uh, and one of the things I have a talent for, is developing um, humor in a number of different ways, both physical and dialogical. And this this thing, the, 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 the there, there's a Hasidic group called the Koblingers, um, which is which is entirely fictional. Um, uh, you, you know, when, when Hasidism was born, different people would go to different cities and they would take on the name of the city to name their group, their sect. Um, and, and what happens is the Koblener Rebbe dies. And um, I, I guess I won't go into great detail about it, but the, the group morphs. The group morphs into something totally different, sort of really new agey and kind of goofy. Um, and that's that's part of the fun part of the book, but it's also part of the, it's, it's got a serious, a serious component to it, raising questions, as I say, about the nature of religion. Um, and, 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 and I'm not anti-religious, by the way, but I am anti-phony baloney religion. And that's part of what this book uh, talks about. The name itself is hysterical, the Schmelzerites. I was wondering if you had like an enemy in high school named Meltzer, and then you made it into Schmelzer. I don't know. No, no, there is a real Schmelzer out there, and if he ever hears about this book, I might, <laughs> I, I, I might have to, I might have to do some, I might have to, I might have some explaining to do. Right, I won't say anything. Um, so there's this whole interesting section about. Nick, when he's a kid, having a crisis, an identity crisis, and he actually goes to speak with the Koblener Rebbe before he dies. And there's a little bit of weirdness. There's a little bit of question about the Koblener Rebbe's ability to see into Nick's um, soul. Can you address that? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, well, it, it's how that evolves later on. It's, it's how, uh, um, I mean, this is part. This part of the book, uh, I uh, Nick 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 is finishing high school. He's a yeshiva student. He's in a modern modern Orthodox yeshiva, loosely based on the yeshiva of Flatbush, and he's in his senior year of high school, and is trying to figure out: Do I stay in the religious world or do I step out into the secular world to go into you know, go to university and and take take my yarmulke off, as he says, and and this and the chapter where he visits with the Rebbe, um, the Rebbe tries to give him some advice, and ultimately the character is unable to take the advice, uh, but it's a very I I, I I I like to think it's a very poignant chapter where in the end the Rebbe and he stand up and the Rebbe embraces him, um, and but. And, and, and gives him a card, gives him a business card. And he says, call me even on Shabbos, on Saturday, which, which no Orthodox rabbi would, uh, would normally um, offer unless he views it as a case of saving a life. So even in the case of, even on Shabbos, he'll see me, Nick, Nick Friedman remarks. The book's written in the first person. Uh, what happens later, uh, that's, up for the, that's up to the reader to see. But there, there's a long-lasting... Um, relationship between the two, but never again do they meet in person or talk on the phone or, or, or Skype or Zoom. It's all through written work. Right. But Nick is clearly a part of this whole story, even before he even before he's a part by being hi, not actually hired, even before Shmuley's father asks him to find his son. 
You mean because right. of his connection with the Kovalner Rebbe and how he already uh, was in that world, and he already underst he understood the players. He understood what was happening. But, well, he yeah he understood the players. Okay, in in the book he's a, he's a scholar of the Kovalner Rebbe's, and when the Kovalner right. when the Kovalner people become the Schmelzerites, he becomes a scholar of them too. So he knows them, he, he knows them from a scholarly way, but also because he's got at least one important contact. Um, a fellow at the university, I think he's an astrophysicist, I don't remember for sure, but somebody in physics who's nevertheless a part of this Hasidic world, who's kind of like his, um, what's, what's the word, it's kind of like his uh, informant, constantly bringing him information about what's going on, and especially doing the transition from a traditional Hasidic group to this sort of new agey group. It's a hysterical book. I read it Saturday afternoon in one sitting. Couldn't get up. <laughs> so I was on lerbs, apparently. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, what, so imaginative. Uh, well, thank you. A lot of fun. Thank you. So, so you're working on the second one now? I'm working on the sequel, and um, it opens up. I'm not going to tell you much about it, except that Nick's in a bad way. He's in a really bad way. He's not leaving his apartment. He's a little depressed, and... Um, um, all it's just it's just Nick in his apartment and Maggie, and things start happening. Um, uh, and that, that's as much as I want to say, um, except that I'm I'm hard at work at it, and I hope to be finished with it sometime in the spring. Let's talk then. Thanks okay. so much for joining me today, okay. Phil. A, a quick commercial announcement, though. I'm glad. First of all, I'm glad you read the book, and I'm glad you read it so seriously. But I'm also I also need to let people know if you want to get on my email list, just go to my email. Uh, I'm sorry, my website, philmcohen.com. Philmcohen.com. And if you sign up, you get an ebook with six short stories of mine. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Phil M. Cohen about his dystopian mystery, Nick Bones Underground. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow, too. Happy reading, everyone.